Amen. And as background to Paul's distress, it's helpful to hear from two passages in Isaiah. Right. Okay, so we're reading Isaiah chapter 44, 9 to 20, and then 45, 20 to 24, and then we'll do the Acts. Anyway, it'll be up here. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and he works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers and he forges it with his mighty hand. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with a chisel the mark, and marks it with, a, with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down a cedar or perhaps a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow among the trees in the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of it, the wood, he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares a meal. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He also warms himself. And he says, ah, I am warm. I see the fire. And from the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. And he says to it, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. And their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel, I even baked bread over its coals, and I roast meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not the thing in my right hand a lie? Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There was no one but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Some of them, were, some of them asked, what is this try, babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You bring some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I've walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you are worshipping. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives all everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their times in their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are God's offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the whole world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, 
a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much that we get time now to uh, dive into this wonderful sermon that really Paul spoke in Athens ages ago, but is still relevant. We pray that you'd help us to see the relevance and because Jesus still has risen from the dead, this is still current. So please help us to understand and pay attention in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you realise it, but um, belief in the resurrection is wacky. Okay, not for Christians, it's kind of normal for Christians. We baptise kids into this faith, but honestly, for other people, the belief in the resurrection that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was dead, who was buried, somehow managed to reverse the process of crucifixion and decay and then appear as the Lord of glory, having defeated death, and then after that to ascend into heaven, where now he sits at God's right hand on the throne of heaven, before which on the appointed day he will then come and shout out in a loud voice, and then the dead in Christ will bodily rise from the dead like Jesus did, and enter a new heavens and a new earth. That, to most people, is bizarre. I love it. I love it. Um, I love it because I think, actually, Jesus did bodily rise from the dead, and if you want to talk about the history and all that sort of stuff, I'm very happy to uh, share that with you. I think you have, have to have more faith to believe it didn't happen than it did because the evidence is so overwhelming. But I love it because it speaks so much of the hope that Christians have, but yet today, Paul takes us one step further than that. Okay, so he's alone in Athens. Athens is the premier city of ideas in the world. It's the seat of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, who were household names at the time. It's a pluralistic city, a melting pot of every religious belief system known to humanity. So in this sophisticated, pluralistic, diverse city, Paul felt compelled to speak of Jesus and the resurrection. He didn't just go to Athens and play the tourist. He didn't just listen to the different ideas. He didn't just even just put his own ideas out there as sort of an equal one amongst other valid points of view. In this religiously diverse city, he was compelled to preach of Jesus and the resurrection. And we say, why? Well, he's obviously convinced the people of Athens needed to hear the message. Why? Now, today, I'm taking us through Paul's sermon here, and he gives us three reasons why. And it's worthwhile, everyone listening to this, maybe you're visiting today, so glad you've come, um, and you've just landed in this series as we've been working our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. Maybe you do think the resurrection is wacky. Maybe you secretly wonder about the sanity of your Christian friends who seem to believe this, all right? Or maybe, on the other hand, you, you know, you go to church and um, talk of the resurrection. It just sort of is like water off a duck's back. It become, it's become so normalised for you. You don't think too much about it. Well, whichever camp you're in, it's worthwhile us getting into Paul's head today because here is Paul 
Speaking of the resurrection, in a place remarkably like Adelaide. All right, so Paul moves from the synagogue to the marketplace to the Areopagus, which in Adelaide terms is he begins in the cathedral and then he goes to the central markets and then he goes to the main stage at Writer's Week. Thank you, Kathy. Bing! Well, it was there at nine. Anyway, I don't know what's happened. There we go. No, no, don't worry. Don't worry. Put that up later on. Okay. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, okay. Imagine a picture of the, <laughs> the main stage at, at Writer's Week or the Adelaide Festival of Ideas. Okay, so Paul's there and he is convinced everyone must hear of Jesus and the resurrection for three reasons and these speak directly to the people of Adelaide today. Now, if he's right, here is why the good news of Jesus and the resurrection has to be heard by everyone in Adelaide who's living now. And the three reasons have to do with God, us, and the resurrection itself. The first has to do with God. And it comes out in Paul's emotional reaction to seeing Athens full of idols in verse 16, which then prompts him to speak in verse 17. Now, hands up, if you have ever been um, remember the days when you could travel, <laughs> you know, before COVID. Re hands up if you've ever been overseas and visited a temple where there were idols or statues in it and people were worshipping them. Has that ever been in your experience? Okay. All right. Now, Kathy, thank you, Q. All right, this is uh, photos that I took when I was in Yangon, uh, the former capital of the um, country Myanmar, which is in the press because of the military coup. In the middle of Yangon um, is the Shwedagon, which is this, on a hill, this massive, massive Buddhist pagoda, which is covered with $4 billion worth of gold, right? It's humongous, and you can see it from miles around. And around that, you kind of go up these stairs to get to it, but around, around it is lots and lots of statues of the Buddha. Um, I went with... Um, friends who were staying there, well, actually the wife, she took me because the husband, he wouldn't go because he, it made him so angry. Now, when I went there, it made me sad, right? Now, maybe you had a, an emotional reaction when you went to a place like that. In Paul's case, we're told that his reaction was distress. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue as well as the marketplace. So what drove him to speak was his distress at the idolatry he saw in the city. Literally, his heart was eating him. So what's behind his distress? Uh, is he distressed for the sake of others? Is he, does he, is he experiencing compassion? You know, He's upset for other people's sake because... They're worshipping things that aren't real, which can't save, and in doing so, were blinding themselves to the God who is real. Was he distressed out of compassion? Well, that may have been there, but I don't think that's the primary reason. And I say that because of the speech that follows, but it makes more sense, given what he's about to say, to say that the main reason why Paul was distressed was for God's sake, not for the sake of other people. Simply put, it upsets him that God, who deserves all glory, is getting ripped off because people aren't worshipping him. They are blind to him. He feels it. Time and time again in the Bible, we've heard two readings 
as examples, idols are spoken against. We could go to the Ten Commandments. Actually, we're covering them next week when we move to Exodus, the new series, all right? But um, idols are spoken against. And Isaiah 45 is this brilliant piece of biblical satire where really they're saying, you know, God says, no one even thinks, you know, half of this block of wood I actually, you know, use to cook my meal and the other half I make into a God and bow down to it. Duh! You know, it's the most stupid thing. Uh, really, he sends them up. Um, you've got a manufactured lie that's impotent to benefit the worshipper in any way at all, and more than that is robbing the living God of the worship that's rightly his. Now, you or I, excuse the French, might think that God's a bit up himself to sort of think like that, okay, but he wants nothing more than you or I do, which is to be treated with respect as who he is. You know what it feels like when someone looks down on you like, you know, they've just trot, or something they've just trot in, or, you know, they ignore you, or they, you know, they ridicule you, they mock you, they make fun of you. You want to say, treat me with respect as who I am. Give me the decency to do that. Well, It's no less for God, except of course he's not our equal. He's the creator. The creator, the one who gives life and breath to everyone and to everything. And that means that everyone, regardless of your religion or creed, everyone who draws breath has to give God glory. He deserves it. Everyone owes God their praise. Revelation chapter four, verse 11. John looks into heaven and he sees and he hears this song being proclaimed in heaven. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You're worthy, why? Because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. God is worthy to receive praise for all that he's, from all that he's made regardless of our religion or where we grew up. And in the Bible, no one is more passionate that that this would happen than the Lord God himself. It came out in Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Or, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. So turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, because I am God, there is no other. Before me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear, they will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. And so when Paul, you see, given he knows all this, when he goes to Athens and he sees this city full of idols, he experiences distress, and it's for God's sake, because instead of worshiping the creator and giving him the praise due to him, people are worshiping idols instead. They're ripping off God. Now, his distress will be shared by anyone who has ever prayed the Lord's Prayer and meant it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First line. Because, you see, if you know God and you know his grace and love to you in Jesus, you'll love him. And you'll know that he deserves the praise. And you'll know idols aren't real and there'll be grief in your heart that others don't love God as well, not just for their sake, but for God's sake. And so Paul's distressed and this compels him to share the good news of 
Jesus and the resurrection. Now, why Jesus and the resurrection? Answer, because it's through Jesus and the resurrection that God will be glorified. Paul picks up in Philippians 2, he picks up the words of Isaiah 45, where God says, before me, every knee will bow. And he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the reason why, you see, he says, people need to hear of Jesus and the resurrection is for God's sake, for his glory. That's how God gets glorified. That's how people will bow the knee before the Father by hearing about Jesus and the resurrection. So as Paul is speaking in the marketplace, he gets into a debate, you see, with two groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we think we don't really know those words, actually, but you know the people. The Epicureans are the enjoyers. Now, in South Australia, we have the Epicurean way, don't we? Okay, this is the wine trail. Epicureans believed that life was governed by chance. There is no life after death. This is all there is. And so their motto was eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. So you might as well just live it up and enjoy yourself right now. That's the Epicureans, the enjoyers. And that describes the people of Adelaide to a T. All right, and then there's the Stoics, the endurers. They believe in fate, like life is fatalistically determined. You can't change it. And so the best way to get through is to have a British stiff upper lip, to kind of grin and bear it, to get through, because emotions are just a distraction, really. Kind of like Maggie Thatcher in the latest Crown you know, episode. People keep asking, how do you feel? It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is that you get on and do what's right. Okay, well, we may not have the accent, but I think this is actually what many people believe, especially those who found life tough. There's nothing I can do to change my lot. I can't change things, just have to get on. They're the Stoics, the endurers. So if Paul finds himself debating with the enjoyers and the endurers about Jesus and the resurrection. Pretty interesting. So now we get to the sermon. So Paul's invited up to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. There's Sally. Okay, my daughter. This, this was in 2019. Remember when you could travel? <laughs> so long ago, right? So there she is at what's left of the Areopagus on Mars Hill. That's that rocky outcrop in the foreground. The Acropolis, or the Temple of Zeus, is in the background, okay? So you can go there today. All right, this is where ideas were discussed. And he connects with the people by saying, people of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious, because as I walked around and looked at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And, and so you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So what he does is he finds this chink in their worldview and, uh, you know, the fear that even though they've got so many idols, they just haven't covered the main one. So they, they have this altar to an unknown God just to kind of hedge their bets. And um, Paul speaks into this gap, this gap in their worldview. We can't hear it, but he's critiquing them. Uh, he's critiquing them when he calls them ignorant we can't hear that because we think ignorance is wisdom. You know, my dad's told me, Chris, wisdom 
is realizing that you don't know everything. There's a truth in that, isn't there, a right humility. But in the ancient world, what we don't understand is that uh, for them, when you put the information out on the table, you didn't make a decision, that meant you were an ignoramus, right? Where we get the word ignorant from. It wasn't a flattering term. So when Paul says you're ignorant, he's, he's critiquing them, right? So, yes, he builds bridges, he draws quotes from their poets, but he's also helping them to see that there's a gap in their understanding. And having exposed it, he speaks into it. And so he gives now the second reason why everyone needs to hear the news of Jesus and the resurrection. First was for God's sake, the second has to do with us, and that's because God made all of us to seek him and to find him. That's the purpose in life. And he, he, he tells them about God. The, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heavens and earth. He's laying this foundational truth about God. Who God is, is the creator of everything, the ruler of everything. But as well as teaching what's true about God, he has to kind of unteach uh, the false views of God which they've taken on. He says, God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, quite the opposite. He himself gives life and breath and everything else. Things come from him to us. He's the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of life. Well, where do we fit in? Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, although he's not far from any one of us. Because in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What he's saying is that we each are made for relationship with God. And the purpose of life is to seek God and to find him and be in relationship with him. Because God made us to seek him and find him. And so seeking him and finding him is not an optional extra for being a human being. That is what it means to be human. It's what it means to be made in the image of God, to seek God and to be in relationship with him. And that's, of course, why we who are made in God's image and likeness, if we aren't in relationship with the God who made us, that's why life seems meaningless. And you'll know what it's like. You can have everything but still feel so empty inside if you don't have a relationship with the living God who is real and not pretend. And so everyone, Paul understands, needs the good news of Jesus in the resurrection. And he's laid out two reasons, for God's sake, so that God isn't robbed of his glory for our sake because God made us to seek him and find him. And the third reason is because of the resurrection itself. The resurrection, you see, of Jesus makes turning to God now desirable, it makes turning to God possible, and it makes turning to God necessary. The resurrection of Jesus makes turning to God desirable. You think about what this message said to the Epicureans and the Stoics, the enjoyers and the endurers. For the enjoyers, they think life's ruled by chance, there is no afterlife, you better eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you die. Well, the resurrection of Jesus who's raised from the dead says, no, that's not all it. You know, if you think life is about, you know, Grange Hermitage and that's as good as it gets, well, pity you. 
Because there is life beyond death. And the best is yet to come. It's physical, it's tangible, it's material, it's real, it's relational. Life is not ruled by chance. No, 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 there's a real God, a sovereign God, who has come into the world to open up the reality and the possibility of eternal life with him, and he's calling us now into it. This is God's sovereign purpose for everyone. This is not a chance thing. It's the purpose of life. And for the endurers, right, the Stoics, they think life is fatalistically determined. The resurrection says, no, no, no. This, this sort of progression of suffering, it can't be interrupted. You know, we have hope. God has stepped in to short circuit that inevitable connection of line of cause and effect between suffering and death and misery. He stepped in, he suffered for us and risen from the dead. And now there's life, a solution for death. There's real life if you turn to Jesus. This is wonderful news, isn't it? So the, the message of Jesus and the resurrection is desirable for enjoyers and for endurers. But more than that, it makes turning to God not just desirable, but possible. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, now, note the now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, this one's really important to get. The resurrection of Jesus, that event in history, changed things. It changed God's attitude towards people who worship idols. Now, how did it change? Listen, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, says Paul, but now, since the resurrection, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul's getting something that we're feeling towards, right? He's saying that since the resurrection, there's been a change in God's policy and God's attitudes towards idol worshippers pre-resurrection versus post-resurrection. In the past, God overlooked the ignorance of idolatry, but now things are different. What's he saying? Is he saying that in the past, will God let people off the hook? Is he saying God's no longer as generous or forgiving as he once was, that since Jesus has been raised from the dead, God's become harsher, kind of stricter in his attitudes towards people from other religions? It sounds like that, doesn't it? In the past, God, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people to repent. The clue is the word overlooked. What does it mean that God overlooked such ignorance? The key to working this out is to rewind a little bit to when Paul went to Lystra and spoke to what was a pagan audience. We covered this a few weeks ago. He's in the town where he was stoned and left for dead for preaching. It's in the... <laughs> the place that he had that rather disastrous outcome for an evangelist of Jesus. So he starts speaking and then the, the, um, the priest of Zeus, the temple of Zeus, comes and says, Paul is Zeus in human form and starts wanting to offer sacrifices to him. This is the exact opposite response which a Christian evangelist wants when they speak of Jesus. <laughs> Not good, all right. Um, but in his speech at that point, he says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, God let the nations go their own way. It's the same thing he says in Athens, but in different words. 
In the past, God overlooked the ignorance of idolatry by letting the nations just keep going with it. But now, he's done something. He sent Jesus to die for the nations of the world, that all the nations would be able to come to him. And he's risen Jesus from the dead to give life to all from any nation who turn to him. And so he's saying now, because of the resurrection, the offers on the table, turning to God, is now possible. And thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus makes turning to God not just desirable, possible, but necessary. And this is the confronting bit. This is where you want to go, ooh, I feel a bit uncomfortable, all right? Because now, Paul says, God commands. Not suggests, not offers, not invites to consider, but commands. Who? Listen to the scope. All people, everywhere. There's no one not included in that statement, okay? According to Paul, Jesus is a necessity for every person from every country, from every culture or every religion. And what he's commanding is people repent, that they turn, they do a U-turn, turn back to him by turning to Jesus. So if you could imagine every Hindu offering incense uh, before their idol, every Muslim bowing down and making their prayer towards Mecca, every AFL supporter um, worshipping at the great temple of Adelaide Oval and singing their favourite hymn. Every child or young person absorbed in their screens for hours and hours and hours on end. Every gardener who loves the outdoors planting out their seedlings. Every student or office worker standing trapped at the bus stop yet again. Every person going through the motions at church. Every factory worker in China or Bangladesh or Nairobi every protester on the streets in Myanmar, every coffee worshipper paying homage this morning at the cafe of their choice in Adelaide, every person whose life is not turned back to the creator and father of Jesus Christ, they all have their backs to God and God is calling them because of the resurrection to turn around, to turn around and face their creator from whom all life comes. Turn and face him. What do you see when you turn and face him? At his right hand in the position of ultimate authority, is his son, Jesus Christ. He is seated on the throne in the position of judge. And that means that judgment day is a certainty. Because of Jesus' resurrection, Paul says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, how does Jesus' resurrection prove that Judgment Day is going to happen? Well, the answer is, in the Old Testament, um, when the prophets spoke of the day of resurrection, they, they, they understood it to be the day of judgment. People are raised to be judged. That's what will happen. So Jesus has risen from the dead. That means now, yeah, we know Judgment Day is going to happen. The first one has been raised. But more than that, after rising, Jesus ascended to the Father's side. He sat down enthroned in that position of ultimate authority. The judge is on his seat, you see. That means that since Jesus has been raised, Judgment Day is now fixed, a fixed date on God's calendar. And every day that you or I wake up and it hasn't happened, another day has been scratched off and we're edging closer and closer to that date. So you see... Turning to God is a necessity. 
Okay, let me draw the threads in. This means for us three things. Number one, we've got to have clarity, Paul's clarity. When Paul came to Athens with its equivalent of its cathedral, its central market, its writer's week, its festival of ideas, with the diversity and plurality of religion, he didn't just say, oh, well, each to their own. Everyone needs to hear the good news of Jesus and the resurrection for God's sake, because God made us to seek him and find him, and because the resurrection makes turning to God desirable and possible and necessary. We need that clarity. Secondly, we need to turn. We all need to turn. Um, what's required is that each of us repent of whatever idol we're worshipping. Now, I'm not just talking about a religious statue because we, you know that we give ourselves to worship things. We, we become obsessed. We, we invest in things that occupy all our waking thoughts. Well, because of the resurrection, God is calling us to lift our heads from that, turn around and face God and come to him through Jesus. To turn to the one who is the source of life, to enter relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Or if you've already done that, but you've become distracted, to stop being distracted and turn and face him. It's desirable. It's possible. And we need to do it. And lastly, of course, we have to tell. Because people have to hear, don't they? Um, recently, my wife and I were at a funeral and hanging around talking to the family afterwards, we spoke to a man we'd never met before who lives in another city who will probably never meet again. He's a relative of the deceased. And he was a lovely guy. He was uh, early 60s and he just retired, early retirement. And in view, in, in light of the world standards, he had everything. He had a lovely wife. He had three daughters. He you know, he had a successful career who is now retired on a hobby farm, just a short drive from Capital City. I mean, this is it, isn't it? This is what we live for. And yet as we were talking, it became clear that recently he'd gone through two near-death experiences. He almost died on the operating table in Thailand. 5% chance he pulled through, he pulled through. Then he had a heart attack while he was working on his farm. And he almost died. And we were talking to him, and I knew I wouldn't see him again, and time was ticking down, so I said, look, I'd usually not be so forthright, but you realise, don't you, God's been immensely kind to you. And the reason why God has preserved your life, not once but twice, was that you would reach out and find him. Because the fact that God has sent Jesus to die for your sins and raised him to life again, is to give you life, is to give you hope from this threat of death that you're under. So don't blow your chance, I said, <laughs> uh, because you've already had two chances and now you're living on borrowed time. So you need to go home, you need to read the Bible, you need to find God because you may not get another chance. And he said, okay. Now, I, I'm rarely so straight with people, but I thought, well, if I don't say it, no one may. He may not hear it. And if he's not going to listen now at a funeral of a family member, when is he going to listen? So I thought, now's the moment. I have to say it. Well, the resurrection of Jesus 
It's reason to turn to God. It makes turning to God desirable, possible, necessary. But also, of course, you don't want to rip off God who gives you your life. You don't want to rip him off. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the God who made us and loves us. And we don't often thank you enough, but thank you. You are worthy of praise and glory and honor because you created us and all things. And we owe our existence to you. Thank you. Father, you have raised Jesus from the dead. And you made us to seek you and find you, but now you've opened up the way for it to happen. So, Father, we want to take the moment now to do business with you and to realize we've been worshiping things that are not God. We've been following fake things. Our hearts have been given to things that are too small when you are life and God. And thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross and rose again for the life that you can give all who turn and please set us free to love you as you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.